0: Let us all turn to Hebrews chapter 8. If you've got a Bible, uh, turn with me. Uh, If you don't have one, there's some on the foyer table just immediately outside. Um, Or you can uh, scroll with me. We're using the ESV, English Standard Version. A few people have uh, said to me uh, recently, um, and they've, they've remarked that, Preaching through the book of uh, Hebrews section by section, line by line, is not something that normally happens, and uh, I kind of... Say, uh, yeah, I understand why. It's, uh, it's like turning on a fire hose in the study, and uh, then I get here on a Sunday and I try and put a fire hose on you all, and you start drinking and just try and tone it down so you can actually get something. Um, it's a very intense uh, book, uh, but I, I, I trust it's been uh, good so far. Um, and uh, I uh, would preach it again. Uh, and that's that's a good thing. But first, we need to finish. Uh, so we are <laughs> we are in uh, Hebrews eight. This is our third week in Hebrews chapter 8. If you've just been joining us, uh, we started with an overview that showed that by virtue of uh, Christ's uh, life, his death, his resurrection, and then his ascension to the right hand of majesty on high, has become fit to be our great high priest who brings people uh, to God. And as a result of that high priest is also become the head of a new covenant. And that is what Hebrews 8 is discussing, uh, taking a prophecy from Jeremiah 31, where the people of Israel and Judah were out in exile in Babylon, um, makes a prophecy. And then hundreds of years later, um, we have the inauguration of a new covenant in Christ's blood. Um, and so, really, Hebrews 8 is laying the groundwork for the rest of the book of Hebrews. Um, Everything after this point is just an implication of some sort of Hebrews 8 and the New Covenant. So many of us get confused uh, by the word uh, covenant and and by the language of, of covenant. We don't use that language often. Very simply, a biblical covenant in which God is one of the parties making the covenant, Uh, Chris Cohe's definition that we've been using, he says a covenant in which God is one of the parties is an oath-sworn, legally binding relationship enforced by God. An oath-sworn, that's a promise, an oath-sworn, legally binding relationship enforced by God. God. It's not a simple transaction. It is a relationship between parties and it is enforced by God. The new covenant is a certain kind of covenant. Let me recap this. It is a gracious covenant whereby the promises or the blessings of the covenant are given as a gift by the covenant head. The person making the covenant who is? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Unlike the, the old covenant, which had a, a, something of a works principle requiring obedience or, or works to, to continue in the blessing of living in God's land, the new covenant is based on the obedience of Jesus Christ. The blessings of this covenant are freely given. They are received not by our performance, but they are received by faith, by trust in The one who has earned and guarantees the promises of the new covenant. It is therefore a better covenant than the old, and it is the basis of the Christian churches and the Christians as a whole relationship with God. The terms that we relate to God are on the terms of the new covenant. And it is for that reason that the prophecy of a future new covenant was made in Jeremiah thirty one after shortly after Israel and Judah had gone out into exile for the breaking of the old covenant. All right so I want us to to read um, that's my my quick summary of what I've said for the last few weeks. Um, and let's read uh, just verses 10 to twelve of Hebrew's uh, chapter. 8, verses 10 to 12. These are the four promises of the new covenant, and this is part two uh, of these four promises. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. This is the Word of God. A couple of weeks ago, none of you probably would have noticed this, but I just want to say, I implied that verse 8... Um, for he finds fault with them, means that God found, found fault with the Old Covenant. And I just want to say this because some people have been listening online and uh, um, and I, I want to make this point here. Uh, that verse is saying he finds fault with them. The fault is not ultimately there in that verse with the Old Covenant. The fault is with the people who are not keeping it. The people who are not trusting God, and because they're not trusting God, they're disobeying Him, they're not listening to Him, and uh, they're sinning and breaking the covenant. Okay? The fault is with the people of Israel in in verse 8, not with the the covenant, right? Um, Because Jesus was the one who did not fail like the people of Israel did. Jesus is the one who kept the true Jew, who kept the covenant, who obeyed God's law perfectly, and uh, therefore was able to offer us the blessings of the new covenant, uh, which the, uh, unlike the people of Israel who broke the covenant by their disobedience, right? Do we get that? So, there has to be something good about the old covenant uh, for for Jesus to fulfill it. Okay, it is God's standard of, of righteousness in His way. All right, so that's all I'm going to say on that. The fault is with the people in uh, verse eight, not ultimately the covenant. One of the reasons I'm spending a little bit of time here in. Hebrews 8, uh, and I have full intention of moving a little bit faster through the rest of, of Hebrews. Most of you say, yeah, right. Um, but we've got to get Hebrews 8 right because it is a crucial for Christians and for churches to understand that their relationship to God is a covenant relationship. You've got to get that. My own testimony is one of years of attending church, getting baptized, claiming to be a Christian, but really not doing a whole lot of walking in joy and appreciating God's love and really struggling with the feeling of that I had to try and hide from God, that I had to try and clean myself up. Um, and it wasn't until the Holy Spirit started to illuminate the meaning of some of these scriptures, like Hebrews 8, that I'd read many times before, but kind of didn't get the implications of, it wasn't until I started to get that, that I began to live a a simple, mostly joyful Christian life. Okay, And so that's why I'm banging this on about this the whole time. Not to bore you, but for your joy. Because that's what God has put this here in His Word for. So last week we we looked at the first promise of the New Covenant, which is, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And to summarize, under the Old Covenant, the Ten Commandments were written externally on tablets of stone uh, in the New Covenant we have an internalizing of the law. It says, writing on your mind and on your heart. So the law that written with the finger of God on tablets of stone is being internalized by the Holy Spirit as a fulfillment of Ezekiel 36, which says, I will put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. And so what this is saying to us is that the ability, even though imperfectly, because there's still a level of sinfulness in our in our lives, the ability, even though imperfectly, and desire to live a life pleasing to God is internalized by the Holy Spirit. That's the first promise of the new covenant. These four promises form a, a unit. And really when we remove one without the other, we start to, um, we start to cause problems. So what we're going to do uh, today, all that by manner of introduction, is to spend a little bit less time on the next three promises of the new covenant. So let's start with the second promise. I will be their God, they shall be my people. Very simple. This verse is found also in Exodus chapter 6 verse 7. God pulled Israel out of Egypt right, and is planning to bring them into their own land. And he's saying, I will be your God, you shall be my people. And so there is continuity of some sort between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. This promise is found in both, and some people will say that this is a basic covenant, biblical covenant uh, promise, that I will be your God and you shall be my people. However, there is some difference. The old covenant sacrificial system looked forward, we said in types and shadows, to Christ's sacrifice. Uh, The the slaughtering of of animals, uh, the Levitical priest, the temple. It is pointing forward to Christ's sacrifice. The new covenant people of God don't look forward to Christ's sacrifice and to the, the coming of Christ. We look forward to the second coming of Christ. We look back to what the old covenant people were looking forward to. Right? So their, sac- their old covenant was in that sacrificial system was pointing to what Christ would do. We're sitting on a different side of history, right? Some people like to say the right side of history. Don't say that, it makes no sense. Um, the difference, however, is that the manner in which we have become the people of God, The new covenant people have become God's people through faith in Christ who lived, died, rose again, ascended to heaven where he is our high priest now. Leon Morris, the commentator, he says of this verse, he says, the God who saves people in Christ is the God of his redeemed in a new and definite way. When people have been saved at the awful cross of Calvary, they are God's people in a way never before known. So what he's saying is there's continuity between old and new but we have come, become the people of God in a substance of that which the old was pointing to in this great way. We have become based on the death of Christ. And so We must never lose sight of that fact. Why am I a Christian? We can say one such answer is because Jesus Christ died for me. That's what Paul's getting at. He says we've been purchased by Christ in 1 Corinthians 3, right? We've been paid for by His blood. This Second promise of the new covenant is, is, is floated through the end of the Bible in Revelation 21. I'd really encourage you to, to go read uh, Revelation 21 at some point and see how these four promises uh, fit in uh, the new covenant. Listen to the first five verses of Revelation 21. John says this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Some of you love that verse. Some of you are thinking like, no crying and mourning and tears and pain and death and diseases. That is because of the new covenant. We see a, a, a wonderful thing in the establishment of the new covenant. It says in um, Hebrews 8 verse 8, it says that this covenant is made with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And without going into an absolute full, full defense of this, those two had split Israel had split in two after uh, Solomon's reign. The ten tribes had gone to the, to the north, to Israel, and the two had remained in the south in, in Judah. The kingdom had split. And the new covenant, there's a promise then of reconciliation. That Jesus Christ, the, the true offspring of Abraham, the one through whom the whole world would be blessed, through whom all the nations of the earth would receive blessing, Jesus Christ is the one who brings reconciliation. We Gentiles are brought in by faith in Christ, who is the King of Israel, who has broken down the dividing wall of hostility, so Paul says in Ephesians two, fourteen. And we, we we see, really, that, that reconciliation go happening in the book of Acts. As you start off in Jerusalem, and then the Samaritans that had split, and the exile, they come in in Acts chapter 8, and then the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, and um, there's just this enlarging of God's people as they're brought in under the rule of the king of Israel. Philip Hughes says, What God accomplishes through Christ is nothing less than the reconciliation of the world to himself. And so when we see this promise, this is very, very good news to us. I will be your God and you will be my people. Because what it is saying to us is that the creator of all things is our God. We're not his enemies anymore where his people were sheltered under the protection of the great king with the promise of the final removal of all the effects of sin and all the effects of the curse that we see today. That's what this promise is. And it's very good news. Alright, let's go to the third promise in verse 11. It says, They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Oh boy. The most contentious promise in the new covenant by a mile. There's a truth dated negatively. If you look at it, it's dated negatively, they should not teach. And then it's dated positively. They should all know me. And despite that level of uh, of information, there's a whole lot of disagreement as to exactly what it means. Now, I'm saying this to you not for confusion, just so you can know some of the issues, right? right? I have spent about, this, you're going to be like, what are you paying me for? I've spent about 20 hours over the past little while reading about this verse from every perspective possible, and... uh This is contentious for a number of reasons. You've got two main options here. Either they shall all know me refers to the amount of knowledge people in the covenant have about God. Or whether they know God at all. Okay? The amount of knowledge people have or whether they know him at all. They shall all know me. Some people have used this verse to say that because it's about the quantity of knowledge and the, and because we've got the giving of the Holy Spirit, there is no need to teach anyone in the New Covenant community anything because you've got the Holy Spirit and you've got this promise. Have you heard that? You don't need to teach. You just let the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit is your teacher, you and your Bible. You don't need no church. You don't need no preacher. What I'm doing right here, right now is a gigantic waste of time. Um, some people say that that there's no need to teach. I would say that that contradicts Jesus Himself in Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen to twenty, where He says His disciples must be taught to obey everything He commanded them. Jesus Himself required teaching. Paul tells Timothy, preach the word to the church and in evangelism, in season and out of season. Preach the word, read the word, be faithful in doing that. The history, I mean, listen, if this means don't teach at all, period, I don't understand why we have a New Testament beyond the Gospels. I really don't. We should just throw all those things out because they're all teaching. Right? So it can't mean that. I would say this verse very likely refers to the to the quality, not the quantity of knowledge that we have about God, it's the quality of knowledge that we have about God. In that view, there's also a spectrum. There are numerous views. This promise is a mainstay in the debate between Credo Baptists who believe that we practice only believers' baptism and Peter Baptists to baptize believers and their children. That's where Peter Baptists come from. Don't be freaked out. If that's all I mean. Children baptized. Believers and their children. That's people such as the Presbyterians and the Reformed who practice um, who practice infant baptism and then much of evangelicalism just practices believer's baptism alone. Many credo-baptists who practice believer's baptism point to this third promise, and they say, look, we should only baptize those who know the Lord. Case closed. right? And they shall all know me. Does the baby know him? No? Cool, don't baptize him. That's kind of a crass way of saying the argument, right? The shot fired back from the other side, where they say, well, we've just had Hebrews chapter 6 with the warning promises, where you've got people that say they're part of the church, and they've been baptized, and then they're found to actually be false converts who don't know the Lord. So the argument is, well, the writer of Hebrews has already said that there's some people within the church that don't know the Lord. How does that work? In between the spectrum of views that we have here, you've got some that see this, they shall all know the Lord as a present promise only. right? That it must be a completely present reality. Then you've got some that see it as a future reality. Yes, they shall all know the Lord, but that's only going to happen in Revelation 21. Right now we've got a mixed church. And then you've got some that say, well, it should have some implications now, and so there's a both-and. So that they should one know the Lord now, and we should try and make sure the church is that way, but it's actually only going to be fully finalized in Revelation 21. You confused yet? That's not the point of what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to confuse you. But I'm saying, so we're aware that there's a wide, wide spectrum of views on this. And so what I want to say, is that I think a helpful, simple way of dealing with this verse in a way that is beneficial for all of us is that we should just contrast this promise based off what we know about the Old and the New Covenants. We can say that membership to the Old Covenant was based on physical descent through Abraham as an Israelite. How were you part of the Old Covenant? Based on who your parents were. We understand that? wasn't ultimately based upon whether you knew the Lord or not. And that brought some problems. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Right? so as people part of the covenant community. They don't know the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 23 and 24, I think, very uh, wonderfully illustrates... Um, the opposite of this third promise. It says this, This command I gave to them, the people of Israel, it says, Obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people. Same thing, right? Walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backwards and not forwards. Obey my voice, I will be your God, you shall be my people. And he said the people didn't do that. They did not know the Lord. They did not listen. Because with an external law, not everyone in this covenant community actually had the law written upon their hearts because they were included by physical descent based on their genealogy. The new covenant is therefore better than this. Because membership of the new covenant community is based on union and your relationship with the true offspring of Abraham and it promises the knowledge of the Lord, that they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. It is not ultimately based upon who your parents are. Your ethnicity. Christianity is a white person's religion. No, it's not. And in complete contrast to what we heard in Jeremiah 7, Jesus says in John 10, verse 14 to 16, You heard this? I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of the fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock, one shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. What does it mean that they shall all know me from the least to the greatest and shall not teach his neighbor? And saying that in the covenant community, my sheep shall hear my voice and listen to me. And so with that a verse that most of us know, that I really think, and, and and I'm thankful that uh, you know who you are who helped me really understand this. Um, that is what this is really getting at. His sheep hear his voice. And that's what this third promise is all about. And the book of Hebrews actually bears so much witness to that very fact. It says in uh, Hebrews chapter 1, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In the last days, he's spoken by his son. That's Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. And at the end of Hebrews, in Hebrews 12.25, it says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. That's what it's saying. Listen to his voice. And those that hear his voice are part of this community. The last promise, verse twelve: I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. I love that. isn't that good news to you? Your brain's still functioning That's just like this is very good news, right? The removal of the judicial punishment of our sins the covering of all of our shame. The removal, the exhausting, the extinguishing of the wrath of God. All of it for our rebellion. And it is for this reason that the promises of the new covenant are the promises of the good news of the gospel. Our high priest is also the Lamb of God who gave himself as a perfect, holy, and blemished offering to bring us to God. This promise is promising the reversal of the curse of sin. This promise is promising the bringing of a new creation. What this promise means, under the terms of the new covenant, is that if you are in Christ... You have equal standing or righteousness. Equal standing of righteousness, right? Not based on what you look like. Not like, oh, that looks like a really good, holy looking Christian over there. It says, no, everyone, no matter what you look like, equal standing of righteousness, equal forgiveness. Equal status as an adopted one into the household of God by faith. Equal status as a child of God with Jesus as our older brother. That's what this is saying. These are better promises. And so what this is saying is that by grace God sends his son to wash his bride bride of the new covenant, with the water of the word by the Holy Spirit, to present her without blemish. Ephesians 5 is just really not just about marriage. In fact, it's actually probably more about the gospel than it is about marriage. That's what this is saying. God looks at us and no longer sees a lawbreaker, but instead he sees the Son who kept the law, who kept the terms of the old covenant, he kept the righteous requirements of the law, and is therefore full of grace and truth and able to say to us, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Because of this, let me apply this very, very quickly. Firstly how do we how do we apply this new covenant like there's so many but here's one we should believe in the objective nature of the gospel promise right the objective nature of the gospel promise I picked those words carefully objective means sure Right? There's not a lot of objectivity around these days, right? It's upset some of you, right? Objective means sure and true. Subjective means the opposite of that. Right? Objective in contrast to subjective. Because the gospel is the message of the new covenant guaranteed by Jesus Christ's person and work in history. We need to understand that we do not fall in and out of God's love and in and out of God's favor and in and out of God's righteousness based on our performance, based on the way we feel, based on our emotions, based on our anxiety, based on anything. That's good news. And this actually frees us up to repent. It frees us up to not act like we've got it all together. It allows us to be humble because our standing before God is based on the work of another. I've said this before. A Christian should not have their identity in being prim and proper and right on, on, on everything and better than everyone else because we believe that by are being baptized and showing that we are Christians, that we have needed and necessitated a Savior to live and die on our behalf. How bad are you? Or it requires the death of Christ to wash you white as snow. How valuable are you, though? You're not a complete piece of rubbish. How valuable are you? Valuable enough that God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. We are valuable and sinners, and therefore we're able to say, I need a Savior, and that humbles us. Our identity is not in trying to pretend to be something we're not. Our identity and standing is based on who God says we are in Christ. So I say this over and over. When were you saved? 2,000 years ago on a hill outside of Jerusalem. I mean that. It is an objective fact for those who are in Christ. And with that, there is the promise of present reconciliation and future reconciliation, as we saw in Revelation twenty-one. Secondly, this helps us to see the danger of heresy and false teaching. I probably don't teach on this enough, but this text gives us a very uh, interesting uh, principle and implication: a false gospel is a gospel that changes the terms of the covenant. You understand that? The new covenant helps us to see what a false gospel is. If you have to earn the blessings yourself, Christ doesn't earn all the blessings, you have to earn the blessings. That's a false gospel. That's why the Paul's letter to the Galatians was written. For this very reason. If you change the terms of the covenant, false gospel, If you have a false Jesus, like the, like the the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Modalists, the Mormons, any of those groups, they have a false Jesus. Uh, the Muslims, you have a Jesus who was not raised from the dead. If you have a Jesus who is not truly God, truly man, and raised from the dead, he cannot be the mediator of a new covenant, and you all are without hope. That's why this matters. I'll talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper next week. Lastly, understanding the new covenant helps us appreciate afresh the rest of Scripture with covenant eyes. I want to give you one example, and I'm going to close with this. One example where we see the terms of the new covenant woven through a text that most of you, many of you, really, really like. For many of us, myself included, Romans 8, the end of Romans 8 is our favorite passage in Scripture. If you asked me to take one chapter of Scripture to a desert island, I would take Romans 8. Because it is chock full of implications of the New Covenant. I'm going to read it, and I hope you go study it yourself and just see how these promises find their way through Romans 8. Verse 31. We'll close with this. Read together. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is why the new covenant matters. Amen? Let's pray.